Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Okay, product developers in the medical device industry, listen up. There are things in your project, risks that are there, whether you've given them the, the credit or acknowledged them or not, you have risk in your product development efforts, you have risk in your product. So it's very important to really embrace this concept, this idea of risk and use it to your benefit. It will help make sure that your product is safer it will help ensure better success of your product development efforts overall. And and so it's really key to think about all the things that uh, you can manage versus the things you can't control and have an awareness of that. And today I'm real excited on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. I talked to Tim Moulton, who is with Modem Industries, and we really get into that that topic of product development, project risk, and things that you can do. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And today I want to touch on something that I think is very important for for probably many of you in the listening audience today, and that is what you can do to better manage product development risk. I mean, there are things that, that you as a product developer uh, can manage versus things that you can't control. And there are, um, you know, just getting the right frame of mind, the right context, and, and, you know, really thinking about this in a more strategic way can, can help, you know, ensure the success of your, your product development efforts. And with me on this conversation today is Tim Moulton. Tim is with Modem Industries. He's a principal engineer. So, Tim, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, John. So before we dive too deep today, do you mind giving the audience a little bit more information about Modem Industries and what it is that you do? Sure. We're a small engineering consulting firm, and we typically work with emerging enterprises or efforts inside larger enterprises. We do traditional product development with more of an analytical and technical bent to it. Uh, we do primarily medical devices, but have worked on everything from toilet valves to x-ray machines and, uh, and consider ourselves generalists. But we do a lot of highly integrated mechanical and electrical design, and it is primarily for the medical device market. All right. Toilet valves to x-ray machines. That's, that's quite a wide array, quite a spectrum of, of uh, different types of products. It does. It makes for great uh, cocktail party talk. But. <laughs> I, I guess the, the thought that instantly jumped into my head is there's something that you learned from your toilet valve project that, that you were able to, to apply to the x-ray. It does. I fix all of the toilets for mine and my extended family whenever, <laughs> whenever needed. All right. So, you know, you're certainly uh, kind of in the thick of it. And, and I know sometimes... Uh, I will say myself, uh, maybe I'll, I'll throw myself under the bus. I think when we think about product development, uh, a medical device professional may think, oh, well, product development for medical devices is way different than product development for toilets. I mean, has that been your experience? It really hasn't. I mean, you have uh, 
you have a little bit more difficulty scheduling things because of the different uh, verifications and validations and the different builds that you're compelled to do. But I mean, fundamentally, you're still building something that needs to be a success in the market and needs to work with the users. Um, you know, the, I think that the medical device world has a little bit of a, a stranger decision process as to who's going to use it, who's it going to be benefiting, and who makes the decision to purchase it. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is design a really strong, robust product that gets people excited. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. And I, I, folks, I think, yes, there are things that are important about medical device product development. I mean, the like FDA regulations, for example, introduces this concept of design controls and, and a, kind of a whole lexicon of things that we need to understand. But by and large, and I'm not trying to trivialize it, don't mishear me, but generally speaking, product development is product development. Now, with that being said, it's, it is more complicated than just like, oh, well, we're just going to design a new device and we're going to test it and we're going to take it to market. I mean, there's all kinds of risk that are scattered throughout the, the entire development effort. And, and sh sure, there are product risks, like what happens if this thing goes wrong and somebody gets hurt? Th those are important. But today, Tim, what you and I are going to be talking about are more about from a project management standpoint, if, uh, you know, what are the things that, that I need to, to do? How do I frame um, my, my context, my efforts? How do I, you know, gather the intel and the information that I need so that this project and, and ultimately, I guess, the product is as successful as it can be. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think over the years, we've seen a lot of self-inflicted wounds. Uh, we, we try to work very tightly with our, with our clients. So we actually form one integrated team. And, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult for us to help steer the project uh, sometimes. And, you know, but we do get this very good perspective as to what might have been avoidable after a project, what difficulties might have been avoidable, and uh, what ones weren't. And certainly there are unavoidable risks. Uh, you know, that's part of making something new. But there are, also, uh, there are also other risks that can come in and really trip you up. So, so when you say self-inflicted wound, you know, Give some examples. What are, what are some self-inflicted wounds that, that you've observed uh, in your career as a product development professional? Well, so, uh, you know, some of it can be inside the device. You know, you have an engineer. Um, sometimes this happens with electrical. Sometimes it happens with mechanical engineers. But you have somebody who's, who's familiar in the past with a very specific technology and, and tries to shoehorn that in at the, at the beginning. And you know, maybe shoehorn's not the right word, but they go to what they know rather than going broad. And so then you end up with a, a, a generational product that's, that's maybe based on not the, the most sound or well-considered fundamental choices. I think that there are other, the other aspect of things is that now, uh, you know, we're all so fortunate in this day and age, it feels like we're living in the future. We hold uh, really well-designed devices every day, whether they're our cell phones or our laptops or, you know, some home technology now. And uh, sometimes people get hung up on incorporating some of these fundamental features that, that have taken a multinational corporation years and millions and millions of dollars to incorporate in something and get hung up on something that is maybe not a central tenet to the, to the value proposition of their product. So we've seen it go both ways, but I think that those are the two big, big things, either a, 
you know, a uh, not fully considered uh, decision on the technical side that kind of submarines into a problem later, or else a, a UI or just general feature that ends up taking uh, a huge amount of resources to bring to market when it wasn't central to the value proposition for your product. All right, so so let's explore that that concept of the value proposition for my product. You know, what are the things that I should be considering uh, to really kind of hone in or, or try to articulate and define the value proposition for my product? Because you know, as you describe that, it seems like that's really important. I mean, that you know, kind of as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, you know, this is the value proposition. That is the vision for what uh, I expect this product to do to be, you know, the, all the things that I hope that it will achieve once it goes to market. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is. And I think that there's a lot of the modern user-centric design approach that that really highlights it. But I think that often it takes a strong founder or a, you know, a strong project manager, I guess in this case, product manager, to really define what that is. And I think what you need to do is you you need to have novelty, right? It's a new product. So you have to improve on something and you have to make sure that that... Uh, that you improve on something enough that it's that it's a, a clear benefit to the user, but you also have to provide hooks for the user to get excited about it. You know, we do we do use very well designed products, and we the average user has a much higher expectation now than they did ten or fifteen years ago, and we need to meet that expectation. But at the same time, I think you have to be honest with yourself and uh, upfront and decide what of these are going to be difficult to implement and then go through them and say, if this one is not ready, if it's not ready for prime time, are we willing to hold up the product or the project because of it? Yeah. And I think, I think that's what it comes down to is just being able to step outside of your effort and yourself and look at your, look at your specification and what your vision for your product is upfront really critically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, those, those are really good insights. And, and a couple of things, a couple of threads I want to pull on a little bit there. You, you talked about your device needs to, to have novelty. You talked about it needs to be, you know, it needs to have hooks in your device or your pro- I, I use the word device. So, um, um, Tim, I guess I should, should clarify when I say device, I, I almost use that synonymously with products. It's just, I'm a 20-year med device guy, so uh, I use those words as synonyms. So just no, uh, you and you and me both. Okay. I don't, uh, you know, the I I understand that there are software products, but I, you know, that's not in that's not in my world. So yeah, well, even software products, I would even consider them devices. You know, I, I, I it's I know it's a generic term, but anyway, I, I, I digress. But you talked about novelty, and you talked about uh, hooks for the user. I guess by if I put on my my regulatory hat. I'm like, oh, hang on, Tim. I'm waving a whole bunch of red flags there. You talked about novelty. You talked about something unique, different. Uh, that that creates a lot of, well, the, the head trash around that is it creates a lot of uh, potential obstacles or challenges from a regulatory perspective. So how do you deal with that? How do you create novelty and, and not be so novel or unique that it, that it creates regulatory hurdles? Well, I mean, I think it, it's been our experience that the that novelty in one field isn't necessarily novelty for the general population. You know, uh, I mean, touchscreens took a long time to get into med, uh, med devices. Wireless technologies are still, um, 
you know, relatively few and far between. Uh, but there are, you know, it, it might be a novel application. That that might be a better way to phrase it. But um, but your, I mean, your product has to offer something different than what's out there, right? And certainly with medical devices, it's a, uh, you know, it's a balance between whether you can find a predicate device or not, and you have to balance that. But, but all of the some of the novelties that I'm referring to could just be good industrial design, could be, just be things that don't necessarily impact uh, your regulatory approach, but really do um, really do make a difference to the people that are using it. Yeah, and I think this is a, an element of risk, right? You know, so if, if I'm, you know, novelty, you know, I, I always often lump things like novelty and innovation and, and things like that kind of in this, the same bucket. It's, it's Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not a good idea. But if you think about what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to... We want people to be excited about our product. We want people to... I, I don't know if, if people get excited about doing medical procedures or using medical devices, but we want the experience to be awesome. Uh, and we want the, the patient's life to be impacted for, for the better as a result of something that we're doing. And so I think if... You know, if we can get that, really get inside the head of that user and understand what it is that that gets them excited and and what they enjoy and 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 how they like, you know, the visual elements or the the how it feels in my hand or you know just things like that. Those are very very important things. And you know, if we're just stuck in this, you know, I got to do this me too type of product. Yes, you know, you may the hurdles from a regulatory perspective may be very, very low, and yes, I can prove and demonstrate and test that. But then I create, you know, other risk uh, to my company, to my business, because you know I didn't, I didn't change the experience. That's right, and I think one area that I think that this is readily apparent is as simple as it sounds, but foot switches, in especially uh, medical devices that are in an operating room. You know, there's there's the requirement that we have independent means of stopping, and so most of the time that's handled with a foot switch. But sometimes you end up with what looks like an organ for the surgeon to use. You know, with all these foot switches littered underneath that. And some of the products that we've worked on in the past have taken a, a different approach to this to to actually bring something uh, onto a handle that has two independent means of of stopping. And I think that you can. You can step back and you can think through these things and you can make the user's life a bit easier so they, they don't have to take their eyes out of the field of view and make sure that they're on the proper foot switch in this particular case without adding a whole lot of risk. I mean, certainly from the regulatory standpoint, you're still, you're still covered. Um, but, uh, and the user experience is just, just worlds better. It, certainly... One particular project I'm thinking of, it would have been easy to just keep adding foot switches. You know, we even considered a three foot switch assembly. But when it came down to it, I mean, that was just going to be, it was just going to be too much. It was, you know, it's an easy decision to make in an engineering review. But for the users out there, you're just making their life slightly more annoying every time they use your product. And if you can relieve that burden, then I think that you start getting users really on your side. Yeah. It's really good insights. Uh, folks, I just want to rem remind all of you that I'm um, talking to Tim Moulton. Tim is 
principal engineer with Modem Industries, and and Modem is a an engineering uh, firm uh, in uh, the the northeast of the United States, and they do some fantastic mechanical uh, electromechanical uh, design of, of various devices. So go check out what uh, Tim and his team are doing at Modem Industries, M-O-T-I-M Industries.com. And, you know, the, the topic is, is timely and it fits really well with what we do at Greenlight Guru. And, and what we do at Greenlight is we have an EQMS software platform. And within that platform, we have specific workflows that can help you better manage information uh, around your design and development process and risk and so on as it relates to the to the product development efforts. So... All right, so Tim, you know, risk. You know, we, we've kind of you know touched on these things from a surface standpoint, but but let's let's talk about what are some tools or techniques or tips that you might be able to provide to people to help them better identify and even evaluate risk as it relates to their product development efforts. Well, I, th- I think that's the fundamental first step right there is to to critically identify and evaluate the risks and. I think that you do want to sit down and you don't want to say, well, just because this device has this feature, it would be really easy to implement. I think that you need to sit down and you need to evaluate, well, you know, feature by feature almost, maybe not to that extreme. But uh, the risks that will really catch you up or not catch you up or hang up are the, are the ones that you don't, that you don't see, that, that kind of blindside you and, and catch you off guard. So I think the number one step is to sit there and to to be honest and and be open and say, hey, is this a risk? Is this not a risk? Um, but the flip side of that is just because something's difficult and requires a lot of work, I mean, that might be a risk as far as schedule and budget goes, but it might not, just because something's difficult, it might not actually be a risk as to whether you can get it done or not. So... I think what you really have to do is make sure that you identify the unknowns as early as you can and then work as quickly as you can to turn those unknowns into into known quantities or at least things with that have plans associated with them to to tackle. Yeah, it's really good insights. And you know, as as a project manager, one of the things I always try to figure out as early as I possibly can, there are known knowns, you know, things that I know, there are things that I know I don't know. And then there are things that, that I don't even know that I don't know, you know? And so understanding kind of those buckets, if you will, uh, would really help, you know, because the things that I know that I know, I mean, that's, that's gravy. That's, you know, that's, that's bread and butter. I, I can manage that. The things that I know that I don't know, Okay, well that that gives me some insights. This is this may mean that you know I have to go have to go talk to Tim, or I have to go find somebody else, or I have to do some research uh, to better to put those unknowns now in in the category of things that I now know. But the things that I want to try to understand quickly, and this is a tricky thing, is the unknown unknowns, the things that I don't know that I don't know. So, do you have any thoughts or tips or ideas about that? Yeah, this is getting downright Rumsfeldian, right? But um, the uh, well, I mean, I think that the number one thing is to talk to people that have been there or that have done something similar before, and I think that that's uh, that can be other engineers, uh, quality people, but more often the the easy way to go is to 
to go and start visiting manufacturers, potential manufacturers, and ask them, you know, because they have great insight too as to what has held up other people. Because once, you know, once you get into tooling or assembly, if you're using, uh, if you're using manufacturers, they're very sensitive to the schedule and they know, you know, former clients or current clients, uh, well, they were making this part and then they had to stop because of this or, this project was scheduled to kick off in a year and a half, but it actually kicked off in four years, and they know why that is. Um, so I think a lot of that is talking to people that, and that allows you to kind of step outside your breath without, without actually consuming that much of your time. Um, but you're right. I mean, what you, you know, finding out what you don't know, I think, is the hardest thing, uh, and. I think that that's made a lot easier by just being honest with yourself about what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I'll, uh, again, throw myself under the bus as an engineer uh, and I'll go back, gosh, probably uh, almost to the beginning of my career uh, some 20 years ago. Uh, I remember getting, you know, I was working as a product development engineer and, and on medical devices and, and um, we worked at the company I was with, we worked pretty closely with physician. I, I say physician inventors. Some of them, well, some of them were inventors. Some of them were physicians with ideas or, or challenges or what have you. And oftentimes, the I would get a very crude prototype, sometimes even a, a literal cocktail napkin sketch, uh, uh, kind of describing or articulating this this thing that the physician was trying to or wanted and, and or this problem that, that he or she was trying to address and you know i'm like oh well i'm an engineer i, I paid a lot of money for my engineering degree I'm, I'm pretty good at what i do i now have enough information based on this prototype or this cocktail napkin sketch plus my engineering uh, prowess <laughs> and knowledge that i can you know put my head down and and go design something and figure it out and you know and, and it, it's I'm going to confess, it took me a few iterations before I realized, oh, crap, that's a terrible, terrible idea. Yes, engineers, you're smart people, but realize they're, one of the things that you don't know is, is generally you, you probably don't know how to practice medicine. Uh, and, and you may not know how devices like what you're working on are actually going to be used. You may not know all the other things that are happening in that that environment, you know, you talked about the foot pedal example. I mean, how many other devices are already in that particular environment that already have three foot pedals? You know, like you said, are, are you going to teach uh, the the surgeon to become an, an organist? You know, probably not. So it's really important to try to wrap your head around that. Um, and, and so, you know, for me, it's, it got to a point where, oh, I want to, I want to get into this mindset of, of prototyping and, you know, and, and the kind of the, the term that's in vogue these days is an MVP, minimally viable product. And we could talk about that. But for me, I always wanted to prototype, build a prototype, get it to the hands of the people who uh, know about, you know, this, this procedure, this type of product and so on and, and evaluate and learn from that and then iterate and iterate and prototype and iterate, prototype and iterate. So uh, how does, how do you operate? How do you work with, with those types of scenarios? You know, it's funny. I was, as you were talking about that, I was just thinking about a project we did a few years ago that was for a surgical robot. And, uh, you know, efforts like that involve very complex and expensive parts. And 
we really didn't build uh, many early prototypes that would be considered true prototypes. But what we did build was about five or six different wooden mock-ups where we used cabinet hardware and we have a CNC router. So we used, uh, you know, routed or machined wooden parts. And we kept building these wooden robots. And what we do is we would play act. We would make sure that the arm lengths that we had could reach uh, all the areas of, of the spine that we needed. We made we mocked up an IV pole. We mocked up, um, you know, anesthesia tubes, all of that. And we made sure that we weren't trying to occupy the same space as something else. We even got so far as rolling a few of these into an operating room after after hours. And it was funny, you know, at one point the client asked us if we were ever going to make something that wasn't wood. But we did. And we made we made one prototype and it worked. And it um, you know, it was it was sized correctly, it had handles in the right spot. And so I I am a strong believer in the build to learn and prototype early, but I think that you also have to uh, be careful to manage your time there and not sink a bunch of time. Uh, on the quality of that prototype. You know, what are you trying to learn? If it's about space, if it's about mass, if it's about proportions, then, uh, you know, even cardboard or foam core might be able to get you there. But the flip side of that is sometimes on a mechanism or something else, you just need to get in and start designing early. I I certainly had similar experiences as you, John, and probably uh, more recent than I care to admit, where we thought we could nail something in a single iteration and it, and it took, it took more than that, or at least partial iterations. Um, so I, I believe that you have to build to learn and that you have to start that process as early as possible. You're going to, you're always going to learn something unanticipated. So you might as well try to start learning that as early as you can. Yeah. I mean, product development, there, there is uncertainty in product development. And, and uh, I know folks listening to this, I, I know you're smart people. Uh, and, and you know, many of you have, have probably done this many, many times before. And, and in my experience of product development, uh, I don't. I'm pretty sure this is accurate. I don't think there was ever a single time that we got it right the first time. Uh, and, and it's tricky. You know, we want to talk about risk because sometimes we build uh, timelines and Gantt charts and, and project schedules on the assumption that we're going to get it right the first time. You know, and and we we kind of fall into traps. I, I one project comes to mind uh, from several years back. We were designing an electromechanical device. Uh, it was a pump uh, product. Boy, this was a complicated thing. But but we didn't treat it as a complicated thing. We didn't appreciate the risk in this project. You know, and it involved a brand new uh, printed circuit board and a lot of other electrical components that we're going to plug into this board. I uh, had mechanical components, I had, you know, different uh, disposable elements and, and that sort of thing. And and uh, our schedule uh, allowed for us to do one board build. <laughs> and and uh, Tim, I, I know you're, you've got some experience with this, uh, or at least I have to imagine you do, but we allowed for one board build and those boards had to be perfect. And well, they weren't. And and then uh, we needed to do some electrical safety testing, and that had to be perfect uh, based on our schedule, and it wasn't. And let's just say we didn't set ourselves up for success; we set ourselves up for failure. And I think a big reason for that 
was because we didn't appreciate the risk uh, that was involved. And, and I think sometimes risk, I think it's maligned. You know, I think when people think about risk, the perception is, oh, this is a bad thing. This means that, that something's going to go wrong. Uh, and, and I think sometimes people, you know, at least in my observation, they just ignore risk. Because if we ignore it, it's not there. And because we believe that if we have it, it's bad. What, what are your thoughts about that? I, I mean, I think that's right. Um, and uh, I think that you're right in that it does get maligned because you only talk about it when it's currently hurting you. <laughs> but, the, um, but, you know, actually, so we're in a similar situation right now where we have an electrical noise issue and we've had to change the way that we've constructed a cable. And, uh, and we probably could have avoided that uh, by just splitting out those, those signals into a very small circuit board and just, you know, three or four months ago, just doing a quick sanity test. And we would have found that we would have had that we had an issue. And we did something that was short of that. But I think at the time, you know, if we were truly honest with ourselves, we would have we would have acknowledged that it was not 100% equivalent. And we were exa- we're doing exactly what you just said. We've had to go through another spin of boards, and um, you know, there have been some other uh, some other things that have taken a little bit longer. So every, everything's still on track, but. Uh, it is uh, it is something that looking back, I wish we would have done a little bit differently. But I think that this this current uh, shall we say problem that we're in the middle of uh, is due to a, a critical user interface component that's on a handheld portion of, of a device with a base unit, and it has been identified that this is key to the to the success of the product, and it's key to the uh, the user interaction. And so I think that this is a classic example of a risk that is not bad, a risk that is worth it, is that there's, we have, um, it's a small screen that's out on a portion of the handheld. And if, if that's not there, it's, it's much less compelling for the user to use. I mean, I think we've all seen endoscopes and stuff where, where people have to turn their head and look at a monitor or a surgical tracking uh, solution where, you, you know, you're moving your hands, but you're looking at a monitor. This had the ability to have your eyes stay where your hands were. And I think that this is a risk that, uh, that is worth taking because it's, it provides the user with something that they're going to expect. And, uh, and it's worth the effort because it's a key component of the product. I mean, I think that in some ways, the novelty of your product demands risk in order for it to, um, in order for you to make it happen. And so I think that there are good risks and there are bad risks. I think that the, the key to determining the good risks and the bad risks is to identify them and, and discuss them up front and weigh them versus the difficulty that it'll take to get through them. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I want to encourage people, whether it's project risk or product risk, I want to encourage people to make that something that, that you, you, you try to identify as early in the project as you can. I mean, if you can do it on day one, just, and if you can just brainstorm, you can just, you know, write all, write a list of all the, the risks uh, that, that you see with this effort that you're about to embark upon, <clears throat> because knowing that or having that as kind of a baseline 
you know, from a, from a product standpoint is very important because if I know where my high risk areas are, the things that are, that potentially have the propensity to cause some sort of patient issue or end user issue, uh, harm, if you will, uh, I can, I can use that as a guide from a development standpoint to make sure that I'm mitigating and addressing those risks through my development efforts. And I think the same holds true from a, from a project standpoint, you know, it's just being aware and, and embracing uh, the, the concept of risk, having a risk-based approach. I know it's cliche these days and in, in the world of quality management systems, they'll talk about risk-based approaches, but, but this is the way products get better. This is the way product development processes get better is to embrace risk as a core foundational tenet of your efforts. I think also if you take that list of risks and you compare it to what your vision for the product is, you know, if you don't see a correlation between those, then uh, then maybe that there are other approaches that you can take or or you can trim trim your approach or maybe, uh, you know, maybe add something to your approach as well. I mean, I think from a project standpoint, I think it's key that you're putting you're putting your time and your effort into things that are going to be worth it. Really, really well said. So, Tim, I know we, we've talked, you know, about a lot of different concepts, a lot of different ideas, a lot of different um, philosophies on on how to embrace risk. So, before we wrap up today's episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience that we haven't covered yet? I'd say the, the only other thing that, uh, that I'd like to stress is to not put yourself between, you know, do, don't put yourself in a Goldilocks zone between two requirements or two risks where you don't have the freedom to operate. You know, uh, like a spinal tap would say, you can't turn the power up to 11. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, uh, you know, you can, you can, at the very beginning, you can reframe things and, uh, and give yourself a little bit of freedom in the future. And uh, I think whether, you know, whether it's a tolerance stack, whether it's a, a power issue, whether it's a weight, uh, something like that, if you're bumping up against a requirement or between two requirements at the beginning of your project, that's only going to get more difficult. And I was fortunate early on, actually my very first medical device project ever was for a, a handheld injection device. And I, uh, there was a spring in it. And at some point later in, the, um, later in the development project, that spring needed to get stiff. And I had not given it enough space. It was just, uh, you know, it would, there was just no space to make the spring stiffer. So we ended up having to, excuse me, it had to get softer. And so we ended up having to switch to a stainless wire for it that was then with ground ends. So on this thing that, you know, they're making millions of, we had to add cost because I just didn't give it enough room, didn't give enough leeway to operate later. And that, um, I didn't think that I was going to stay up late running spring calculations for something, you know, nine months later, but that taught me a valuable lesson. (laughs) It's a really good Really good point to end on. So, folks, I want to thank Tim Moulton. Tim is the principal engineer at Modem Industries. Uh, look them up. They're, they're medical device, well, product development ex- experts. They certainly do a lot of things, uh, uh, anything from, from toilet valves to x-ray machines, but a uh, really great firm uh, that 
you should be aware of. So go to Modem, M-O-T-I-M industries.com. And, and Tim, thank you so much for being my guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast today. No problem. Thanks for having me, John.